It's the NPR Politics Podcast, live in Chicago. We're here at the Riva and David Logan Center for the Arts in partnership with member station WBEZ. And this episode is just part of a bigger show we will post to the podcast feed very soon, but there was some political news late this week that we wanted to talk about first. That, of course, is the resignation of Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and what seems to be a big change of tone, at least for now, from Donald Trump himself. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. So this is just like any normal quick take we do, but with 500 of our closest friends watching us in person here. Hi, guys. So about the news. About the news. (laughs) If you're listening, uh, we're recording this on Friday night, August 19th, and the big story right now is that today, Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, resigned. This came after pollster Kellyanne Conway was promoted to be campaign manager, and Steve Bannon, who had been the head of conservative Breitbart News, became CEO. Now, a reminder, this was after the campaign insisted that Paul Manafort would remain on and that this was absolutely, totally not a shakeup. So... It's a shakeup. It's a shakeup. Things were shook. Oh. Uh, Yeah, shook up. So let's go back, though. A full 24 hours, it seems like forever ago, Donald Trump got up and said this at a rally in North Carolina. Sometimes, in the heat of debate and speaking on a multitude of issues, you don't choose the right words or you say the wrong thing. I have done that. And believe it or not, I regret it. And I do regret it, particularly where it may have caused personal pain. Too much is at stake for us to be consumed with these issues. But one thing I can promise you this, I will always tell you the truth. I can just imagine like Kellyanne Conway being like, Donald, this speech, you got to say you're sorry. And he's like, I'm not going to say sorry. You got to say sorry. And he's like, I'm not going to say sorry. And he's like, I'll say regret. She's like, okay, we can can work with that. It was close-ish to an apology. So what do you think that he regrets? He didn't specify, uh, but, <laughs> but you know what I did find kind of fascinating about this is that just before he said that, he was talking about how he's not politically correct and how we don't have time for that. I mean, so he's not apologizing for that. Like he made it very clear that yes, I have regrets, but not about the not about the way that I talk about things. 
This Which is, is sort of fascinating. It is fascinating, and it seems part and parcel of an adjustment, uh, as he said yesterday. Uh, I'm from a world where if something is broke, you try to fix it. Well, I think it's fair to say his campaign has had a tough two, three weeks uh, since the two conventions. He's clearly upset at his standing in the polls, which has deteriorated, and Hillary Clinton now has a lead in the battleground states and in most national polls. He's clearly aware of that, and so what he's trying to do is adjust to be a more sympathetic figure, to not appear to be enjoying inflicting pain, and in addition to this comment <laughs> that he made today, in addition to that, he spent time in Baton Rouge today uh, delivering supplies to flood victims, handing things from a truck to Mike Pence, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and helping, helping with the effort. It's like he's saying, I'm not pivoting, I'm not pivoting, while pivoting back and forth from teleprompter screens that he's been reading from all week long. But to be fair to him, most politicians don't ever actually say they're sorry, right? About anything. I mean, like, that, I can yeah. think back to many scandals and issues and situations where I, I was saying to these I mean, like in my mind, just say you're sorry, but they don't really do that. Hillary so, Clinton has been struggling to. She um, says regret as well, right? About <laughs> she, lots she of regrets things. that people are upset and misunderstand what she's saying about her email server. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry yeah. you don't. But get I it. mean, for me, what's more puzzling than the regret or the non-apology is this ongoing outreach now to various communities. You know, this is, has been a week of uh, outreach from Trump to Black people, often in rooms full of white people. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, so tonight he gave a speech that was titled, Donald J. Trump invites African Americans to join change movement. African American groups have invited him to talk to them for a while and hasn't done it. But I'm not here to say whether or not he means it or not or it's working or not, but what, what gets me is that a lot of the numbers that he talks about in these speeches mm -hmm. aren't particularly sound. So one figure he throws out a lot is that the unemployment rate for African Americans aged 16 to 24 is 59%. It seems crazy because it's not true. Um, so the unemployment rate for black people that age is about 18.7%. Uh, the number that Trump seems to be using is the percent of that entire group not working. But that's a group that is less prone to work because they're in high school and they're in college. <laughs> and he's done this with other groups too, right, Danielle? Oh yeah, and what's kind of remarkable about the African-American statistics that he throws out is that the numbers are there if he wants them. The black unemployment rate is always higher than the white unemployment rate. He ha the numbers are there to cite, but he chooses to cite this really big one. And what I think, if you want to assume the worst, you can say, is Donald Trump playing into some pretty negative stereotypes about black people by citing such inflated numbers? You know, I, it, there's, I, it seems like there's a better way to do outreach. And, and I will say, I was, I was in Wisconsin where he gave the first iteration of this speech. Yeah. Uh, and he, again, was, was in a room full of white people. And, and much of the conversation was about crime, poverty, single motherhood. Um, I, I think that there is more to the African-American community and things they care about. I'd agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's, what also was kind of remarkable about the speech yesterday is that he did a lot of talking about togetherness, how we're all going to move forward together. Who else has been saying that? Oh, you mean that person whose signs all say stronger together? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Hillary Clinton, just to <laughs> <just there. laughs> 
Who's that? <laughs> Whose signs I stare at a lot <laughs> at a lot of events. Right, and so uh, it's he seems to be trying to put a bit more of positivity into th- his message, but um, he's still maintaining the same sort of message that he's had in the past. I think we can kind of agree on that. You know, but he's trying to compare himself and Mike Pence and some other Republicans and their response to the flooding in Louisiana to what he has characterized as a lackadaisical response, either from the administration, Vice President Biden's been down there, President Obama has not, he's been on vacation, Uh, he plays a lot of golf on vacation, and so we are reminded of the comparison to George W. Bush, who eventually gave up golf uh, during the Iraq war, but it's the optics of the situation, another thing we like to fall back on in political analysis, it's the way it looks to people. And President Obama yesterday was golfing with none other than Larry David, um, who... Who is probably a really awful golf partner. Well, maybe he's really good at golf, but I feel like he would, like, grump about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that ball. <laughs> but, I mean... But... I think that was both my Larry David and my Bernie Sanders impression, and neither of them are any good. Well played, well played. <laughs> but I mean, so but there's also some argument that politicians should not be going there right now, right? Yes, and and that is an argument that Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards made yesterday, um, and and I think we we have a little tape of that. The vice president was here about three weeks ago to go to memorial service for the victims of the uh, the, the police officers who were killed here. And I will tell you, it is a major ordeal. Uh, they free up the interstate for them. Uh, we, we have to take hundreds of local first responders, police officers, sheriffs, deputies, and state troopers to provide security for that type of visit. I would just as soon have those people engaged in the response rather than trying to uh, secure the president. So I'd ask him to wait, if he would, another couple of weeks. But he's certainly welcome to visit anytime he wants to. So he decided, the president today, that Tuesday's a good day. It's not a couple of weeks from now, but um, the White House put out a statement saying that President Obama would visit Baton Rouge on Tuesday. Um, But of course now, it seems like he was pushed into it by all the people and by Donald Trump going there ahead of him, meeting with people, taking some selfies, passing out some goods, um, visiting a a high school with a buckled floor. And it, it was like... Donald Trump got a little ahead of the president. Well, I mean, it seems like a first opportunity for him, I think, to look presidential in a crisis. Like, this is what it would look like if I were president and something bad would happen. I would show up and I would help. And he was wearing a Make America Great Again hat the whole time. Of you course. But was. the white one, not the red one. Subtle. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tasteful. What does that mean, man? I think there's a pivot in that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ron. We should mention that this news also comes on the same day that Donald Trump is out with the first television ad of his of the general election. It's called Two Americas to the Tape. In Hillary Clinton's America, the system stays rigged against Americans. Syrian refugees flood in. Illegal immigrants convicted of committing crimes get to stay, collecting Social Security benefits, skipping the line. Our border open, it's more of the same, but worse. Donald Trump's America is secure. Terrorist and dangerous criminals kept out. The border secure, our families safe. Change that makes America safe again. Donald Trump for president. I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message. So he was really late to do this, right? Because Clinton's been running ads all over the place for a while. Like I keep seeing the one where it's like the kids watching TV. That's all over the place. And this is his first run. Mm -hmm. What's, is this unusual? Why so late? This is, this is very late. 
And he, this is a buy, it's a $4 million buy. I think Hillary Clinton has spent something, what, like $70 million so far, right, within the general election since June. Right, with a lot more from groups supporting her, by the way. It's more, more than $100 million altogether as of earlier this week. And the ads of Donald Trump, he's running these in Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So, Ron, what does that tell us about his strategy? He does not seem to be running them in Virginia, which previously had been considered one of the most important swing states, nor Colorado, uh, nor Iowa. He's doing well in Iowa. That's probably his best battleground state. So he seems to be concentrating on those states that mean the most to him to address what has become a bit of a runaway uh, for Hillary Clinton in, in states he really needs to win. He obviously needs to win Pennsylvania and Florida and Ohio. We've all said it a million times, but no one has ever, no Republican has ever been elected president without winning Ohio. So he needs that one in particular. Let's now watch a Hillary Clinton ad because she is also uh, out with an ad today. And, and if there is anything that says there are two Americas, just watch the two ads next to each other. We go to work because others depend on us. Hillary Clinton gets it. Standing up for families and children has been her life's work. Under her plan, working parents get relief from the cost of childcare and a path to debt-free college, equal pay for women, and paid time off to care for family. Building an economy that works for everyone, not just those at the top, because we're stronger together. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. That's an ad for brown people. Like, <laughs> yes. that's, that, that, that is, is a very, that's, that <laughs> looks very different. Yes. Well, I mean, compared to Donald Trump's ad also, it's a very Hillary Clinton ad in the sense that it lists out policy proposals. <laughs> <laughs> policy specificity is this woman's middle name. It's an unwieldy middle name, but it's her middle name. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, and they're all family-friendly policies as well, which is she has been leaning into very heavily. Leaning in. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That was honestly God, and not a Also, I, I'm just going to point out there were a lot of hugs in her ad. <laughs> <laughs> and she often talks about love and kindness, and everyone rolls their eyes at her. Um, but that's kind of what that ad was. And, and the Trump ad was kind of be afraid, be very, very afraid. There are people at borders coming through, there are people on trains, there are people trying to get here. Well, right. Even in the second America that he talks about in his Two Americas ad. Um, what was that? Somebody drop the mic. Be afraid. Um, even in the second America, there's a helicopter flying. And that, like, it's not just families, you know, standing there. It's helicopters. There's a battleship. I mean, it, yeah, it's not quite the soft, huggy America that Hillary Clinton was trying to present there. Yeah. yeah. So in the last few minutes we have for news, we should talk about the emails and the FBI things and the stuff that just confuses me more and more every week. What is going on with that? Yeah, so uh, in the last podcast, yeah. which was yesterday, well, <laughs> unclear when our listeners will hear this, but it was very recently, we just talked about this. Mm -hmm. um, the FBI had sent members of Congress at their request notes from a July interview Hillary Clinton did about her private email server. The Clinton campaign wanted them released in full because they feared that Republicans would cherry-pick potentially harmful information and leak it. Republicans said no, um, but then someone leaked information about some of those notes to the New York Times. So basically what the Times was saying is Hillary Clinton told the FBI that Colin Powell 
said to have a private email. Mm-hmm. A private and, email, not a private server in the basement. Right. <laughs> right. So here's the passage from the Times. Uh, so the Times wrote, in his memoir, It Worked For Me, Mr. Colin Powell writes about his personal email, and he has taken pride in having tried to advance the antiquated technology practices at the State Department. But his use of personal email and Mrs. Clinton's aren't entirely parallel. Key phrase there. Uh, Mr. Powell did not have a server at his house or rely on outside contractors as Mrs. Clinton did at her home in Chappaqua. Yes, there is a big also, distinction there. Also, leave Colin Powell alone. I don't know, this just feels like... <laughs> <laughs> what good does it do to bring this man back out of his house or whatever? I don't know, it's just, I, it feels weird. Well, obviously he was a Republican Secretary of State. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there is cover available in suggesting that the practice of having private email was not entirely unprecedented, and that it gives you something else to say other than, gee, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, We also have a a relentless pursuit of other emails there may have been that we haven't seen before uh, from Judicial Watch and from other watchdog groups, uh, conservative watchdog groups, that have made it their mission over a number of years uh, to hound Uh, the Clintons in particular, uh, and point out everything that they have done that has strained credulity, everything they have done that has pushed the limits of the law, pushed the envelope on public integrity, and we're also going to go through, I think, uh, chapter and verse of everything the Clinton Foundation has done. Uh, We've just been told, if I'm not getting too far ahead here, the Clinton Foundation will no longer accept money from foreign governments. uh, Or corporations. Or corporations, and that if... uh, if Hillary Clinton should become the President of the United States, her husband would actually have something else to do and would quit the Clinton Foundation. He would be the Fagotis. Yes. The he first would be the gentleman of the United the, States of America. Come on. Something. No. Stick. No, we're not going to call him first dude. Yes, yes. We're not okay. going to call him first dude. We're not going to do that. I feel like gentleman. my last. Yeah. But, but, but this is this is an ongoing concern. It's an ongoing issue. It's something that has contributed mightily to the undermining of her personal trustworthiness with the voters. We have to only go to any poll that is done about Hillary Clinton and her characteristics and the concerns that people have about her as a potential president. Trustworthiness is always number one. I just have, not to be the guy that's griping all night, but here's my thing with the new details about them changing the foundation if she becomes president. Wouldn't a a good time have been to have changed those when she became Secretary of State? And the Obama administration, President Obama and his team tried very hard. They set up rules. They, they really tried to constrain what the foundation could do while she was Secretary of State to avoid sort of pay-to-play allegations. And, yeah. and, and the Obama administration you know, has all these rules about lobbyists working in the administration, all of this stuff. Um, there have been revelations recently that it makes it seem as though perhaps... Some of those firewalls were breached a little. If you are Clinton-friendly, you will see what they're doing now as you know, an excess of caution. You'll say that she's trying to be more Catholic than the Pope. On the other hand, for <laughs> people who have sincere doubts about whether or not she has, in some sense, peddled influence to foreign entities that wanted to influence American policy when she was Secretary of State or when she's president, then what they're doing now is going to look like slamming the barn door after the horse is stolen. That was one. Mr. Midwest. (laughs) 
Okay, that's it for now. Check your feed again soon for the rest of this episode live in Chicago. It'll be a little different than the weekly roundup we usually do, and you don't want to miss it. More of our political coverage is at nprpolitics.org, and as always, you can email the show at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.